Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And Robert, I want to ask you about a Greek myth. Go for it. You know the myth of Tithonus? This is not one that I uh, am, am readily familiar with off the top of my head. No. Well, it's one of those great ones with doomed lovers. Aren't ah. doomed lovers just fantastic? Yeah. Is there? Does a god show up and uh, act particularly crappy towards mortals? Uh, not. I don't know if it's on purpose. You do get Zeus <laughs> being a jerk, but it might be like he's a jerk by accident, or maybe he's a jerk on purpose. It's kind of hard to tell. Huh. Yeah, because uh, being a jerk is kind of Zeus's default thing. In general. Yeah, Zeus in this myth acts kind of like the monkey's paw in the classic short story where you you get the wish but not quite in the way you wanted it. Mm -hmm. So here's how it goes. And this is the version that's in the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite. So the the myth involves the goddess Eos. Eos is the goddess of dawn. And she falls in love with a mortal man from Troy named Tithonus. And this is horrible, right? It's horrible for a goddess to fall in love with a mortal because while the gods may live eternally, dining on the ambrosia and just going on into the future, of course, mortal people, as the name implies, will die. And she hates this idea. She hates the idea that the man she's fallen in love with will someday die while she gets to go on living forever. She can't bear the thought of it. So she goes to Zeus and she makes a request. Will you grant my lover Tithonus eternal life? Hmm. And Zeus does it. <laughs> usually, you know, usually Zeus is a jerk. But here he's like, yes, yes, I will do that for you, Aos. Well, maybe he was busy and he's just like, OK, yeah, I'm, I'll just go ahead and check this off the list because I've, I've got this uh, this other torment in mind for another mortal. Right. Don't have time to be a jerk. Just bam, eternal mm -hmm. life. You will not perish and die like the other mortals. But then it takes a dark turn. Mm. So let me read from the translation of the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite. Uh, and this is translated by Hugh Evelyn White. Quote, so also golden throned Eos wrapped away Tithonus, who was of your race and like the deathless gods. And she went to ask the dark clouded son of Kronos that he should be deathless and live eternally. And Zeus bowed his head to her prayer and fulfilled her desire. OK, so he's granting the wish. Too simple was queenly Eos. She thought not in her heart to ask youth for him and to strip him of the slough of deadly age. So while he enjoyed the sweet flower of life, he lived rapturously with golden-throned Eos, the early born by the streams of ocean at the ends of the earth. But when the first gray hairs began to ripple from his comely head and noble chin, queenly Eos kept away from his bed, though she cherished him in her house and nourished him with food and ambrosia and gave him rich clothing. But when loathsome old age pressed full upon him and he could not move nor lift his limbs, this seemed to her in her heart the best counsel. She laid him in a room and put to the shining doors... There he babbles endlessly, and no more has strength at all, such as once he had in his supple limbs. Hmm. Okay, well, this makes me think Zeus probably just 
agreed to her request because all the gods know that mortals are going to ask for immortality at some point or the other, and they're probably not going to phrase the question properly, and you should let them have it because it will teach them a lesson. <laughs> yeah, he'll mm-hmm. learn when he's old and babbling and, and decrepit but cannot die. Yeah, because global myth cycles are filled with stories of of immortality gone wrong you know it's either a wandering immortal who's doomed or um, or lovers who you know obtain a, a, a potion of immortality and it's mishandled there's a there's a wonderful example of this in uh, in chinese myth uh with the, uh, the, the 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 elixir of immortality and the and the, the woman of the moon Oh, does it come back to bite her or come back to bite the person who wants it? Um, it, it gets – there are a few different versions of the tale, but essentially, you know, one person is immortal and the other is not, that sort of thing. This, this, this mismatch uh, that we see present in the Greek tale as well. Man, why are there so many myths and folk tales where people get punished for wanting better than their lot in life? Well, because you can't have it ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially when it comes to things like you know, avoiding death. Uh, and avoiding aging, you're not going to get it. So there's something refreshing about stories in which people do get it and it backfires because yeah. that way we think, oh, well, this this thing that I cannot have is actually not that great. So, whoo, thank goodness I'm going to grow old and die. Yeah, I wonder if it makes you feel like you're not so bad off. It's like, well, I'm going to die one day, but I could be like Tithonus and that's even worse. Yeah, exactly. So I think the myth is sort of an embodiment of this cruel fact about human nature. It's not just that, as they say in Bravos, all men must die, but that all people must decline. I think Warren Zevon put it best. He said, time treats everybody like a fool. And I think that's the case. And no amount of lawyers, guns, or money will get you out of this. That's right. So on one hand, you've got the idea of death. And death is a sort of unavoidable fact about biology because living organisms are these finely tuned factories of chemical reactions. And if you make substantial changes to the factory, say by jamming a rock through part of it or biting part of it off or filling it up with parasites that gum up all the gears, the factory isn't going to work the same anymore. It might not work at all. We're physical creatures. We're subject to physical disruption. So the potential for death is unavoidable. It's sort of part of what it means to be alive. But aging, not quite so much. This steady, time-correlated decline in our biological fitness. Why does that have to happen? That's not physically inevitable in the same way that death is. Hmm. Yes, and this is going to be the question we're going to be discussing in this pair of episodes. Now, we do want to drive home. We're not going to get as much into some of the mechanics of aging. Like, we're not going to get into uh, uh, telomeres and telomerase and all and all of that, although that's a, a wonderfully insightful topic unto itself. We're going to be talking more about the these the, the, the sort of evolutionary function of aging, if it has one. Right. Aging is something that has such a cost. For the organisms that undergo it, like Tithonus, what pays for it biologically? Why does it exist? Now, to underscore the fact that aging is not necessarily something that is inevitable, and especially not aging as early as we do, we should maybe look at some organisms that do not age in the same way we do. Yeah, they're... There are a number of organisms. I'm sure a number of them come to, to everyone's mind here. You think of uh, ancient hoary tortoises stumbling across the uh, 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 the ground, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or perhaps your mind turns to the Greenland shark. We'll come back to that one in a second. But really, one of the more insightful examples here uh, is the hydra. 
mm-hmm. or at least individuals in the Hydra genus. Uh, so you're talking about the monster that gets its head cut off and grows two more. No, as much as I do love the the mythical Hydra, no, these are the uh, the natural world Hydras, tiny tentacled creatures uh, that, that continue to wow scientists because they they have a number of just wonderfully bizarre and monstrous uh, capabilities. So they they can reproduce through asexual budding. Uh, they have wo- these mouths that open up kind of like wounds in their body and then close. There's some fabulous videos of them doing that. It looks like you're staring into the mouth of hell. And they have uh, this seemingly natural inability to grow, grow old and die of natural causes. Mm-hmm. They boast low mortality rates throughout their lives. And apparently, this is according to one uh, Dr. Owen Jones from the University of Southern Denmark, he has claimed that it would take uh, 1,400 years for 95% of a hydra population to die of natural causes in the lab. Wow, well well that's a hardy species. Yeah, so let me let me back some of that up here with uh, with some more th- uh, facts about the life of the hydra. Okay. So their fertility rates remain constant their entire lives, mm-hmm. which uh, as as we'll discuss is uh, is pretty unique. And according to um Pomona College biology researcher Professor Daniel Martinez, he has repeatedly found no evidence of senescence in laboratory coddled hydra. Yeah, and he even goes so far as to state that an individual hydra can live forever under the right laboratory circumstances. Whoa. Now, of course, that's the catch, right? The hydra's natural environment offers sufficient hostilities to make natural death by old age an impossibility. Mm-hmm. you got disease, predators, water contamination. These are the things that usually kill a hydra off in due time. And likewise, scientists have yet to create a, a hydra utopia that can sustain them indefinitely. Now, this is a good point in the use of the word immortality, which mm-hmm. sometimes comes up when people are covering organisms like these. There are a couple of different ways you could look at immortality. One would be the Highlander version or mm-hmm. something like that, where there's just like nothing that can kill you except maybe one or two little things. But that you are generally invulnerable to death. And then mm-hmm. there'd be a different version of immortality that says, well, yeah, you're vulnerable to death by injury or disease. You just don't naturally grow old and die. You don't have a cap on your lifespan. That would be more like, what, are, are the elves of Middle Earth kind of like that? Like they can be killed in battle, but they don't grow old and die? Yeah, well, I mean, I would argue that the immortals of Highlander are much the same. Like yeah. there's a there's a very specific thing you can do to kill them. Uh, and... Technically, anyone can do it. It's just you've got to get the drop on them, right? We should mention that we're <laughs> popping in little references to Highlander to get you ready for the fact that one day soon we're going to do a Science of Highlander 2 episode, and I'm not kidding. Yeah, you have advance warning so you can all go review at least the first two films. Well, I would say just the first two <laughs> films, actually. Okay, but back to the Hydra and biological immortality in the real world. Yeah, so this is a major point, really, for all organisms. The natural world is generally sufficient to ensure mortality. It's dangerous. It's filled with competitors, predators, pathogens, accidents, and all manner of additional hazards. Uh, Now, humans and their captives tend to live uh, in a very privileged space, largely removed from the threat of predation, at least. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll find other creatures with no natural predators as well. Typically, these are apex predators. Uh, But that doesn't mean they don't have to deal with all these other dangers. Well, no, when 
when you think about an apex predator, just because there's nothing that tackles it and mm-hmm. tears it apart and eats it, that doesn't mean that it's not subject to uh, attacks from its environment. Right. I mean, it, of course, is subject to disease. But one of the other things to think about with an apex predator is these creatures are very often constantly at the edge of starvation. Yes. And so when you see the antelope running from the cheetah or something, of course, the cheetah is trying to kill the antelope. But by escaping, the antelope is sort of also trying to kill the cheetah. It is starving the cheetah to death by escaping. The cheetah is a great example, too, because if a cheetah injures itself in the pursuit of a prey, especially if it tackles prey that is a little beyond its ability mm-hmm. uh, or or is potentially beyond its ability, it can sustain an injury that results in death, not because it becomes infected or, or what have you, but because, say, a, a wounded limb on a cheetah can mean it cannot pursue prey and it starves. Right. This is another thing we often fail to appreciate in the natural world is how uh, how absolutely damning a a small injury can be Mm -hmm. to an organism that has to hunt or escape hunters to survive. You also, of course, uh, read about uh, large cats that have turned um, uh, man killer. And uh, in some of these cases, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, sometimes it has to do with the the decline of dental health, like Mm -hmm. their their inability to depend on their, their teeth for their traditional prey. And it leads to sort of a desperate switch in uh, their their uh, selection of prey. So anyway, most most individuals are going to die or be killed before they can grow old. Uh, so there's already a low probability of being alive and reproductive at an advanced age. Still, hydras are uh, are really interesting because they give us a real world of, world example of how an, how undying creatures would work on a biological level. Mm-hmm. They're hardy. They're regenerative. Uh, they they they've evolved to thrive in in harsh environments. And it actually reminds me of uh, an alien species that shows up in Ian M. Banks' uh, The Culture series. Of course, going to the culture. Yeah, I mean, he he always managed to work so many wonderful scientific topics into his uh, his books. And one of these topics is biological immortality. All right. So we meet in the really the very first culture book. Uh, we meet the uh, Idirans. And uh, here's just a quick quote. The Adirans themselves had evolved on their planet Adir as the top monster from a whole planet full of monsters. (laughs) The frenetic and savage ecology of Adir in its early days had long since disappeared, and so had all the other homeworld monsters except those in zoos. But the Adirans had retained the intelligence that made them winners, as well as the biological immortality, which, due to the viciousness of the fight for survival back then, not to mention Adir's high radiation levels, had been an evolutionary advantage rather than a recipe for stagnation. Now, I think that might be something interesting to come back to maybe in the second episode and consider whether it would actually work that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what the effect of high mortality at different stages of life would have on the lifespan of an organism. All right. Well, on that note, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to roll through just a few other long-living organisms uh, that are not a hydra or an adherin. All right. We're back. So I mentioned the Greenland shark earlier. The, the This one is pretty impressive because Greenland sharks live where we understand now about 400 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is an ex- exclusively wild species as well. This is not something you're going to find growing old and fat in an aquarium. These are sharks generally don't do very well in aquariums. Correct. Yeah. It's, and no one has a Greenland shark that I am aware of as of this recording. 
A 2016 University of Copenhagen study estimated that one female Greenland shark uh, had was it was at least 400 years old, and that the species doesn't even reach sexual maturity until 150. So think of that. Not until they've reached an age that exceeds every human being who has ever lived. And that's counting unverified but not mythic individual humans. <laughs> right. Not the Highlanders. Right. Or, you know, like, you know, biblical days. Right. Oh, OK. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, that's still not the oldest animal. Uh, because th- there was a clam named Ming. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first line of a children's book. I know it should be. I well, I would be. I'd actually be surprised if there's not a children's book about Ming. There was a clam named Ming. Yeah, and Ming did love to sing. Yeah, it's, it's, it writes itself. So technically, Ming was a quahog clam. This is um, an Arctic variety of clam, and it was discovered off the coast um, of Iceland in 2006. Now, at the time, they thought it was around 405 years old, so they named it after the Ming Dynasty that would have ruled China at this time. Mm -hmm. Later estimates, and this is supported by carbon dating, would boost that age to 507 years, half a millennium. Wow. So this means that the, the creature was born in 1499. And that's still within the Ming Dynasty, which okay. went uh, 1368 through 1644. Uh, and to throw another point uh, of context in there, this was around the time that Leonardo da Vinci completed the Last Supper. It's the year Portuguese explorer Vasco da Gama reached India. Wow. That's when this, this thing was, was born, and then it died in 2006. There was a clam named Ming, and Ming remembered everything. There you go. Now... The plant world, of course, has all of this beat. Uh, there's the, the great basin bristlecone pine, or Pinus longava, and it can live to over 5,000 years of age. And that takes us back to the very end of the Neolithic period. Mm-hmm. Uh, work on Stonehenge had begun. This was the age of the pharaoh. So it lived through the rise and the fall of the Roman Empire. Now, of course, this highlights that different kinds of organisms have massively different potential when it comes to lifespan. Yeah, and of course plants are very different from animals. This reminds me that one of the ideas that was brought up recently, I believe on our discussion module on on Facebook, our Facebook group, uh, that we should do something just on plants. Like, what is a plant? Mm -hmm. Just sort of strip it down to its basics. I kind of like that idea. It's a really lazy animal. (laughs) Well, I've got a really lazy one then uh, for you here. Uh, there's at least one step beyond uh, the great uh, basin bristlecone pine, and uh, this is something you'll find in Fish Lake National Park in Utah here in the United States, uh, the quaking aspen tree, which is also the state tree, by the way, mm-hmm. also known as the trembling giant or pando, which means I spread. <laughs> so what we have here, and this is this is one where not everybody necessarily agrees with, this might be sort of bending the definition a little bit of mm-hmm. what is a long-living organism, but what we have here is a single clone of quaking aspen connected by a single extensive root system that's roughly the size of Vatican City, 106 acres, 13 million pounds, and it's all 80,000 years old. So what you're talking about is a forest that is all sort of in some way the same organism. Right. You, it's it's not as simple as the clam was born in this century and it died in this one. Right. But if you if you bend the definition enough and you accept this as an example, we're talking about a thing that has lived since humans first left Africa to colonize the world. Wow. Yeah. Now, Robert, here's something I've always wondered about. Okay. Dinosaurs. Yeah. You, you got to wonder how long they lived, especially because this gets warped by our sense of history. I think because 
they lived so long ago, you just naturally go to this completely illogical place where they must have lived a long time. Like, okay, a Tyrannosaurus Rex lived maybe 300 years. I mean, <laughs> they, get, they they got very big, so you have to imagine it took them a while to grow as big as they did. This would take a lot of years of eating and cell division and all that. So, so, so surely they had very long lifespans, right? Well, this used to be the, the, the main theory. Uh, and this was in part because of A, their size, or at least the size of many of the specimens, and the fact that we thought, well, they were essentially giant reptiles. Mm-hmm. And so based on slow reptile growth rates and their size, they said, well, big dinos probably lived several hundred years. But today, paleontologists believe they grew more like birds and mammals. And this cuts back on their lifespan somewhat. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, the the Field Museum of Chicago, uh, they have this, uh, this t- these T Rex remains uh, that they named Sue. Sue, yeah. Sue is great. Yeah, she's a wonderful specimen. You get to look right up at her and get a a sense of the the true size of this this amazing species. Can I say something embarrassing? Go for it. I cried a little bit at Sue. Yeah, I'm not kidding. When we were in Chicago, mm-hmm. and I was just sitting there looking at Sue for a while. I, it did something to me. I got a oh, little misty. Yeah. That's that's beautiful. I I, I can understand it because it is like looking back in time to encounter a you know a fossil like that. Yeah. So Sue is a rather big uh, specimen, or at least I, you know the, the fossil remains are rather large and speak to a large specimen. They th- we think now that she probably achieved adult size at age twenty and lived to a ripe old age of twenty nine. Wow. Yeah. So I am now older. Than, than this Tyrannosaurus Rex was when it died. Exactly, yeah. And, uh, and it just underlines that what you had with the dinosaurs was likely rapid growth but short lives. Now, one sort of side question that we won't fully explore, but this this may raise the question, well, did dinosaurs have cancer? Because you're thinking about rapid growth, right? Mm-hmm. Of course. Well, Base, this is a question we may have to come back to, but based on the research I was looking at, we only have evidence of the hadrosaurs, the duck-billed dinosaurs, uh, developing any form of cancer. Now, that's the caveat. That's the only, you know, the only ones we have evidence uh, of, that, of that occurring in. Right. Uh, but it is interesting to think of like the late model dinosaur as being the place where we see the cancer uh, showing up. Oh, we got to come back and do an episode on dinosaur cancer in the future. Yeah, by all means. Well, I want to do something that we often end up having to do, which is that after we've explored a concept for a while, it becomes more and more complicated and our lay definition starts to get a little less useful. Mm -hmm. So I I think maybe we should ask the question, what actually is aging? Now, we we have a pretty uh, intuitive gut level understanding of what aging is. We know it when we see it. But how would you define it? I mean, it is something different from death. And it is something different from just like, I don't know, your skin getting wrinkles or something like that. What What is the actual scientific thing that all of the stuff we call aging has in common? Um, this, well, this is a great question. I mean, on one hand, it, it, it is closely tied to death. And I think one of the stumbling blocks is that we'll, we'll all readily admit that aging is something that our body does. Right. But we tend, there's tend to, tends to be a cultural barrier in place to saying that death is something our body does. We like to push that off onto some sort of external force of, of fate or, uh, anthropomorphized dread, you know, or some sort of limit imposed on us by the gods. Well, yeah, yeah. Death is something that we more often characterize as happening to us. Mm -hmm. Death happens to you. It's not something you do. Though there you can kind of see that the division between the 
the death and the aging death I was talking about at the beginning of this episode comes into focus because, of course, death can happen to you if you get a rock jammed through your, you know, mm-hmm. through your body or something like that. But the body does seem to naturally progress toward death over time. And that's kind of a weird question. Like, why would it do that? Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll definitely explore the science behind that question in the second episode, though we will uh, look at some archaic answers to it in this one. Because when, especially with the human, with the human uh, experience of aging and death, it seems completely illogical that in many cases a, a human being would spend the majority of its life progressing towards death. Yeah, like majority well, of your life is decline. Uh, that just feels either you know, gross or cruel or just like a horrible design flaw. Or Yeah, or nonsensical. Yeah. Where's my eternal youth? This doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Um, so in his 1991 book, The Evolutionary Biology of Aging, published by Oxford University Press, the biologist Michael R. Rose defined aging in the following way, quote, a persistent decline in the age-specific fitness components of an organism due to internal physiological deterioration. Now, Rose actually has offered, has said that in some ways we might need to update that understanding a little bit to accommodate for some new discoveries, but I think this is a good place to start. Mm-hmm. So let's look at the parts of that definition. Number one, it's persistent decline, which means aging only goes one way. It's not characterized by, say, decline and rebound. And some organisms do have patterns like this. It's not quite aging. Like you can think about the jellyfish that have regenerative capabilities where they can revert to a younger stage of life. Oh, yes. Uh, but the, so it's persistent decline. And then in the quote, age specific fitness components, biological fitness, meaning the ability to survive and reproduce. So these are the things that are persistently in decline. You become less able to survive and less able to reproduce. And then it's due to internal physiological deterioration. So it's saying that this persistent decline in the ability to survive and reproduce is not due to disease or injury, but to something uh, deteriorating within the body tissues themselves. Yeah, I, this is this makes me think, of course, of the phrase cradle to the grave. Yeah. And with the, with the hydra, the cradle to the grave is kind of a, a straight line with reproduction taking place <laughs> at all levels mm-hmm. until something happens to kill it. Whereas most of the models that, that we look at, most of the models we looked at uh, in researching this episode, it's more of a, uh, of a rise, rising and a lowering. There's a, a rise towards like peak sexual maturity, s- uh, peak reproductive maturity, mm-hmm. and then a decline. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and then it gets even stickier, right? Because we, we've just tried to be very careful in how we're defining this. But then I realized that I said the, it's a decline in the ability to survive and reproduce, not due to disease or injury. But a lot of the things that are the characteristic signals of aging are sometimes thought of as diseases, mm-hmm. even though maybe they're not caused by, say, a germ or something. Right. Uh, th- there are all kinds of things like uh, diabetes mellitus or like rheumatoid arthritis that are totally characteristic signs of aging in human beings, and they're thought of as diseases. 
But they're not so much something that gets done to the body by external forces. They're a thing that happens when the body's around for a long time under certain conditions. It makes me think back to our episode on Chinese immortality and about the, the idea of the, the older body being kind of a, an alien body. Like it's a different biology. We're, we're changing into a different being mm-hmm. with different physical characteristics, uh, generally characteristics that, that lean towards, uh, towards weakness. Absolutely. But then again, you can also look at aging through the microscope, look at it on the cellular level. And this is where you'll often see people using words like senescence, uh, defined by, by nature's scientific glossary, quote, senescence is the process by which cells irreversibly stop dividing and enter a state of permanent growth arrest without undergoing cell death. Senescence can be induced by unrepaired DNA damage or other cellular stresses. So this is looking at it on the microscopic level and saying senescence, uh, often used as, as a synonym for aging, happens when the cells stop making new rejuvenated cells. This is kind of the uh, the lack of upkeep keep model. It's the idea that, well, the house is falling apart because nobody's working on it, nobody's maintaining, or at least the, the maintenance has really been scaled back. Or uh, it's, all, it's, it's been my experience thus far with aging that you find the maintenance requests are um, – are, are kind of rolled out in an illogical way uh-huh. where you you like you may think to yourself well why am i still sore from this injury i sustained last month but my my what my body's really trying to do is like grow a bunch of nose hair yeah. you know it, like why why is that the um, the, the the main operative that's been passed down to my body you know everything's beginning to get out of whack it's as if it, it's as if there's nobody in charge anymore uh, and they're just letting the the house uh, fall apart. Yeah, if you were the superintendent of an apartment building, mm-hmm. it would be like there's a water leak in the basement that has not been fixed for months and your repair person is busy building hundreds of kitchen cabinets on the roof. Yeah. Yeah, and you think well in the old days we we didn't have all these kitchen cabinets on the roof and things got fixed. Why do things not get get fixed anymore? That is a great question, and I guess we should try to uh, look at some answers to that when we come back from this next break. All right, we're back. All right, so let's look at some historical and lay answers to the question, why do we age? What's the point? Why does it happen? One common example that seems to make sense to people is the idea that our bodies over time, quote, get worn out. (laughs) Uh, So in his 1957 paper, Pleiotropy, Natural Selection and the Evolution of Senescence, which we will definitely come back to in the second episode here, the American biologist George C. Williams pointed out that one problem explaining the true biological reason behind aging is that many people think they already understand what aging is and why it happens, and they're wrong. They're wrong, but if you think you've already got the answer, you'll never go asking the question. In writing of these kind of folk explanations for aging, he says, quote, The most injurious of these is the identification of senescence with the, quote, wearing out that is shown by human artifacts. And doesn't this seem very sensical, right? Our tools get worn out over time. If you use a knife a whole lot, eventually it'll lose the the sharpness of its blade. Uh, any tool you use too much, I'm thinking about a broom that we used to have for years around our house that eventually got worn down to nubs. There were just really no bristles on it anymore. Shouldn't our bodies be the same? 
Yeah, this reminds me, I've had to explain this to my, my son recently, where he'll get some sort of cheap toy, you know, as a prize or something. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and he'll be really into it. And I'll have to explain to him that this is not the sort of toy that lasts very long. You know, <laughs> toys like this may last a week or so. And, and he's like, no, some, some toys last forever. And I'm like, well, they don't, they don't really. Mm-hmm. And you have to try to explain how pretty much everything that is made by man is going to fall apart. Okay, after I finish my children's book about Ming the Clam, mm-hmm. I'm writing a second children's book called Toys Die. <laughs> it, well, it reminds me of the the short story that uh, that AI was uh, was based on. It oh had a yeah, t- I forget the exact title, but I believe it was Super Toys Last All Summer, which I always thought was uh, a, a rather fun uh, title. That is great, but knowing knowing that, we also know that they won't last forever, like you like you say. So going back to what Williams wrote, quote. A moment of serious consideration should convince a biologist of the fundamental dissimilarity between these two processes, meaning the body wearing out and tools wearing out. The breakdown of human artifacts is strictly mechanical and is readily cured by mechanical repairs. The system is a static one, since the same material is continuously present and there is no endogenous change with the passage of time. An organism, on the other hand, is an open system in a state of material flux. Even such structures as bones maintain constant exchanges with the environment. Moreover, an organism produces itself by a morphogenetic process. It is indeed remarkable that after a seemingly miraculous feat of morphogenesis, and that means like growing into the adult shape, a metazoan should be unable to perform the much simpler task of merely maintaining what is already formed. I think this is a fantastic point. I mean, it doesn't make sense to say we get old because over time our bodies just get worn out because our bodies have the ability to rejuvenate tissues. They built the tissues in the first place. They could just keep building them as long as they wanted. Yeah, I mean, I think part of this is the – I mean, part of it is just that we are so close to the aging process. We experience it and we see it in others. Uh, we're almost too close to it to have an objective uh, view of it. And then, to your point, we're informed by what happens to our tools. And then I also, they're tying into the experience uh, as well and the wearing out of things. I, I think dental health has a, has a huge impact on it because we observe this happening with our very teeth right. and the teeth of others that you get that uh, those adult teeth in and those are the ones you're going to have for the rest of your life as long as you can keep them, you know? They are going to wear out, and unlike other organisms, there's not going to be an additional uh, set that are going to uh, lock into place. Third children's book for for when children get their baby teeth knocked out. It's called This Is Your Last Chance. (laughs) Yeah, I've actually heard uh, parents, I think half-jokingly, talk about not worrying with brushing that much for young children because now they're going to get get that second pair. These are not even... These are just the baby teeth. Wait till the adult teeth come in and then start worrying about it. Ugh, yuck. (laughs) Now, beyond these simple folk explanations, we know that there have been lots of thinkers throughout history who must have tried to explain why aging happens before we had modern modern genetics to really understand the true mechanisms, right? Yeah, this is, you know, aging is part of the human experience, and so some of the great thinkers in human history have pondered it. Uh, We have a few examples here to run through. Uh, for instance, uh, Lucretius, 99 through 55 BCE, uh, he wrote about it in uh, his uh, text On the Nature of Things. 
And he argued that aging and death are beneficial because they make room for the next generation. Oh, this is probably another folk explanation a lot of people would employ, right? It totally seems to make sense. You mm-hmm. can't just keep living forever because you got to make room for the next generation. Yeah, it it especially makes a, a, a sort of sense, I think, for human populations when you have, say, individuals who have, over the course of their lifetime, accumulated certain benefits and powers and possessions. And then the idea is, well, when they fall away, those resources spread to someone else. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, we, we we have always lived in a world of, of finite resources. And I want to be clear, it is good that that happens. The mm-hmm. next generations actually do benefit from the fact that older generations grow old and die. Uh But there are some serious problems with thinking about this as the reason biologically that they grow old and die. Yeah, though this this observation persisted well up into the 20th century. Uh, For instance, 19th century German biologist August Weissmann uh, also believed that the death mechanism created room for the next generation of young to thrive. Uh, And, and, you know, I, I have to admit as well that I always it always I always kind of felt this was the case, you know, at a gut level without Mm -hmm. putting a lot of. Uh, serious thought behind it. Oh, yeah. Before I investigated this, I assumed something along these lines. But then I started to doubt myself because I was like, oh, wait a minute. That's group selection. And yeah. I always feel iffy about that. The problem here is pointed out by Daniel Fabian of the Institute of Population Genetics in, in uh, the publication Nature is that, quote, the cost of death to individuals likely exceeds the benefit to the group or species. And because long-lived individuals leave more offspring than short-lived individuals, given equivalent uh, reproductive output, selection would not favor such a death mechanism. Yeah, this is one of the classic arguments against any kind of group-level selection influence, and uh, we can revisit this in more detail in the second episode. Now, of course, another great uh, thinker is Aristotle. Right. Yeah. Uh, and he, of course, wrote about this as well in On Longevity and Shortness of Life. Aristotle, tell us how it is. All right. Well, before I go, get going here, I do want to point out I, I am going to be the last person to to criticize Aristotle. Uh, uh, I feel like he uh, he he did a, did a lot with the wisdom of the day, obviously. To, right, and that's an understatement. Uh, but he was not <laughs> <No>. able. <laughs> We're not going to take the opinion that Aristotle was dumb. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was talking. I was actually talking about this with my my wife last night uh, when I was running through the material I'm about to uh, to relate here. And she said, well, that would actually make a wonderful like BuzzFeed style article, like six things that dummy Aristotle got wrong. I mean, he, <laughs> he, he got a lot of stuff wrong, but I mean, everybody in the ancient world. did. Yeah. I right? mean, he people he, just didn't know what we knew today. Right. And he was attempting in attempting to figure it out. He threw out a number of hypotheses that were not uh, that did not shake out. Yeah. So here are just a, a, a few quotes from the work that will give you a, a, an idea of where he was going. The reasons for some animals being long-lived and others short-lived and, in a word, causes of the length and brevity of life call for investigation. Fair enough. Okay, yeah. yeah. Same question we're asking. Why does it happen? And then he goes on to say, Races inhabiting warm countries have longer life. Those living in cold climates have a shorter time. Hmm. Likewise, there are similar differences among individuals occupying the same locality. I don't know if that's true. Uh, I, I mean, we already touched on the Greenland shark, and um, I, I think we've gone more in depth on the Greenland shark in, in the past on this show, but a part of it is its environment, which is quite cold. Okay. Uh, he also commented on the, the connection between the soul and the body. The soul must stand in a different case in respect of its union with the body. 
and then this at least uh, rings true. Hints too, all things are at all times in a state of transition and are coming into being and passing away. Oh, okay. So this could be interpreted to mean something kind of like the fact that we're constantly undergoing cell division. Yeah. And our bodies maintain them. I mean, obviously, Aristotle didn't know this, but that our bodies maintain themselves through cell division and repair of tissues. Yes. And then there's this. Quote, speaking generally, the longest lived things occur among the plants. Uh, example, the date palm. Next in order, we find them among the sanguinous animals rather than among the bloodless and among those with feet rather than among the denizens of the water. <laughs> Hence, taking these two characters together, the longest lived animals fall among sanguinous animals which have feet. Uh, men and elephants. Well, clearly we've learned how to make your aquarium fish live longer. You transplant some feed onto them. <laughs> uh, this at least is good. Quote, as a matter of fact, also, it is a general rule that the larger live longer than the smaller. For the other long-lived animals, too, happen to be of a large size, are also those I have mentioned. Now, uh, I'm sure this is not a hard and fast rule, though I think there are probably some weak correlations along these lines, Yeah, I right? think so. I mean, we already touched on the dinosaur thing, but uh, but certainly there are some examples of rather large animals that have longer lifespans within typical longevity. Yeah. Now, Aristotle's working theory, though, is that all of it revolves around moisture in an organism. Oh, yes. <laughs> Quote, we must remember that an animal is by nature human and warm, and to live is to be of such a constitution, while old age is dry and cold, and so is a corpse. I think Aristotle also tried to uh, explain earthquakes by way of moisture. Mm -hmm. I may be misremembering that. <laughs> And uh, he also said that aquatic animals don't count here because they're not humid, they're watery. And, quote, watery moisture is easily destroyed since it is cold and readily congealed. And finally, he also throws in, for in animals, the males are, in general, the longer lived. I don't think that's true either. Yeah, I believe in in, in, uh, in many cases it is the, it is the female that lives longer, uh, certainly in humans. Mm -hmm. Though that may be more pronounced in cases where we've been removed from the like when we've got mo modern medical care because mm -hmm. for example there is a lot of natural uh, mortality during childbearing correct yes so i don't know you can maybe a point for aristotle there maybe a point for uh, modern science we'll see um but anyway that's that's uh, that's what aristotle had to say on the matter and uh and I, I, like I say, it's 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 fascinating to look back on his writings and see how he's working this all out. Totally. So in the end, I think we're still left with this biological paradox of aging. Once we think about aging in a biological context, it sort of fails to make sense. Evolution selects for genes that increase biological fitness, meaning they increase the chances of survival and reproduction. Aging is characterized by an organism-level decline in the chances of survival and reproduction. So why would organisms that have been evolving for billions of years still age, deteriorate, lose the ability to reproduce, and eventually die? Shouldn't we have evolved to maximize survival and reproduction as long as possible? Shouldn't we survive and keep making babies until a leopard bites our head off? But obviously, this is not how things are. So what's the answer to this mystery? We'll explore that in the next episode. That's right. We have a cliffhanger. Will it be a cruel twist of fate, accident, 
uh, biological mechanism that serves a purpose? I don't know. We'll find out. Maybe our genome has been evolving to feed leopards. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, in the meantime, while you're waiting for that next episode, head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You'll find videos, blog posts, links out to our various social media accounts, such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Big thanks, of course, to our audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. And if you want to get in touch with us directly the old-fashioned way, you can do that, as always, by emailing us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.